As you're taking your seats, I want to encourage you to grab your Bibles and open them up to the book of Acts. A couple summers ago, I did a series, um, if, and maybe you can just give me a, a sign that you were here for that. It was called Butchering the Bible. Anybody here for that? Yeah, all right. A few cheers. Right. It's exciting. Five of you. Um, we, had, we did a series a couple summers ago, and the intention of the series was to look at some of the most misunderstood and misused verses in the Bible, verses that, that you would have heard, maybe used, uh, verses that have, are often kind of plucked out of their context, and they're used in a way to say something that, that that Scripture really isn't saying. And so what we did in that series was we tried to kind of unpack those verses in their context and get at the right meaning of those texts, understanding that when we have the right meaning of the text, we can apply the text the way God intends for it to be applied. Look, you can make a Bible verse say whatever you want. The question is, what does God want it to say? What is God intending for it to, con- to convey? Now, I say that only because we are dealing with the book of Acts, and the book of Acts is one of the most misused and misunderstood books in all of the Bible. It's not uncommon for movements, even within evangelicalism, to use verses from Acts to develop and build entire theologies, and so it's important when we come to the book of Acts that we approach it the right way. There are different kinds of books in the Bible, uh, books that are meant to be read and understood different ways. There is poetry. A poetry is filled with symbolism and literary devices that are intending to convey meaning. Uh, the Bible is filled with didactic material, epistles that are intending to teach us doctrinal, foundational truth. There is wisdom literature that's supposed to be understood as general truths, general axioms to be applied to our lives. And what we face when we come to the book of Acts and what we understand in the Bible is there are historical books in the Bible, books that are helping us understand the history of God's plan of redemption. Acts is just that. It is a historical narrative. That's important because that influences now the way we read it, the way we understand it, and the way we choose to apply it to our lives. If you approach the book of Acts as if it's some kind of instruction manual for the church, you'll end up actually doing great damage to what this book is intending to be for the church. But if you can approach it the same way we would approach history, understanding, looking for principles and finding truths that are supposed to be normative and understanding there are truths that are not supposed to be normative, you're well underway to applying this book the way that God has intended for it to be applied. You see, it's very dangerous to come to a a book that's historical narrative and develop entire doctrinal structures. That's not the intent of the book. Now, when you approach the book of Acts, it's helpful to understand that this book is descriptive. It's not primarily prescriptive. Again, the difference being this, when something is descriptive, it's describing for you what happened. It's not necessarily prescribing what you must do with it. Let me qualify that by saying that as we go through the book of Acts, what we will find is that there are prescriptive elements in the book of Acts. There are sections of didactic teaching. We'll come across them where, where Paul or Peter are talking directly to the church, and he's wanting to give actually formal instruction to the church. And we know that that applies to us directly because we can look at other aspects of, or other books in the Bible that affirm this is what the church is supposed to be and do. And we'll make sure that we point those out as we get there. We come to other sections in the book of Acts 
that some have wanted to make normative, that some have said must happen in the church, and yet what we must understand is that there are unique things happening in the book of Acts that are not intended to be repeated in the life of the church. They're one-time events, or maybe there's multiple extensions of that one event, but it's important that we understand the difference. Now, maybe you've already put this piece together, but this morning is going to be a little less preachy and a little more teachy. Some of you are saying, I wish you would have told me that before I came. Um, Listen, that doesn't mean it's going to be boring, I hope. There is so much, so much here that's foundational for the life of the church. In fact, if you know anything about Acts chapter 2, you know that this is a foundational section for the church of Jesus Christ. When we come then to the book of Acts, what we must understand is this. Rather than applying everything we see directly as if it's supposed to be just kind of imposed upon the church and we must do it exactly the way they did, we must understand this. We are looking primarily for understanding what happened. We're looking for principles that do apply to us, and we are looking for specific didactic sections of Scripture that we will directly apply. So, with that said, it's helpful to understand that the book of Acts is a unique book amongst all the other books in the Bible. It's not simply historical narrative. The book of Acts is what we can maybe coin as a transitional book. It's unique. It's not just describing what happened in in, in some kind of small, minor way. It's describing a pivotal turning point in the history of the universe. It's describing a time period that is enacting a new day, a new life, a new power that has never been fully understood or embraced before this. This book is transitioning from the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, into the New Covenant or the New Testament. In the Old Covenant, we have multiple ways of God dealing with His people, of communicating to His people, of working with His people, of sending them on mission for Him. And in the New Covenant, there's an entirely different economy being established that is critical for you and I to understand. You see, prior to the death and resurrection of Jesus and the coming of His Spirit that we will see in Acts chapter 2, all of the believers beforehand were living in an Old Testament setting, an Old Testament scene underneath the Old Covenant of God. With that came old laws, old practices, old distinctions, old systems that now have no place in the New Testament because they're, they prefigured something that is now being fulfilled. The New Covenant has established and ratified by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ a new day. The question then when we come to this book and understanding is this, how, how are these people in this old covenant setting supposed to embrace and understand this new way of life? I mean, we're talking about a massive shift in mindsets, in behaviors, in practices. Everything for these people is about to change. This is a book that's transitioning them into a new way of living. And what we must see is this, rather than there being a stark stop and start to this new age, the book of Acts helps us understand that there is a transition period, a phasing in of this new day. 
Now, make no mistake about it, there is a radical starting place, and that is happening as the Spirit of God is unleashed upon the church in Acts chapter 2. But what we will see as we work through the book of Acts is that all that the Spirit brings will be phased in. You see, God is desiring for the church to understand with great clarity what His purpose and intention for them is. There would be great confusion if there was just this start and stop, this old way done, new way starting. And what we see is this, God in His kindness has developed this phasing in process that we will see happening throughout the book of Acts. We saw last week that they selected 12, the twelfth apostle to fill the place of Judas. And as they did that, we're reminded that this is a brand new phase in God's plan, in God's redemptive plan. You see, the twelfth apostle had to be selected because the apostles had a unique role to play in this new phase of God's kingdom. These twelve apostles would become, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, those who would lay the foundation of the church. They existed at a unique point in history for a unique period of history And once they fulfilled their roles, their mission, so to speak, was over. They handed everything over to the rest of the believers. They laid a foundation for the church upon which the church would begin to be built. The apostles had a short shelf life, so to speak. In fact, what we see as we go through the book of Acts is that even as the apostles begin to be martyred for the faith, they are not replaced Their position in the church was for a time. It was for a season because this season is unique, and they would be used by God to phase in this new day, this new covenant life. Acts 2 is an earth-shattering event. It is a universally earth-shattering event. This life-altering event that abruptly begins this new phase of God's plan of redemption is a one-time event. It is unique because God only starts His church. He only starts the institutional church once in history. And so we would expect as God launches this brand new phase of history, it would be utterly unique and distinct. And by the way, it would be undeniably of Him. That's exactly what we see in Acts chapter 2. Here we see the birth of the church, and it begins in its infancy stage Let's read the text together, beginning in Acts chapter 2. Follow with me, beginning in verse 1. It says this, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, we'll get there, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes. 
Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said, they're filled with new wine. The day the church was born is a unique, unique event. And what we see unfolding before us on the pages of Scripture is first that there was a promised renewal on this day for the church. Verse 1 tells us that when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. It had been ten long, long days since Jesus had ascended into heaven. There were 120 faithful Christians who have waited just like Jesus had asked them to do. We saw last week that they all gathered with everything in common, with one accord together, and they began to pray the first time in history, probably ever, and probably the last, that the entire church was gathered for a prayer meeting. Some of you will get that in a second. They're waiting patiently. It's the day of Pentecost. They've all gathered together, unaware that this was going to be the day in history that changed everything for them. Pentecost, literally the word in the Greek means 50th. 50th because it was precisely 50 days after the Passover celebration. If you remember the Passover celebration, we looked at that in great detail throughout the Gospel of John, but it was the very day when the Jews would gather together in Israel and and they would all celebrate the day when God had brought them out from slavery and bondage to the Egyptians. He had set them free, and the way he did that was that they had to take a lamb, and and they had to paint his blood across the doorposts of their house, and the, the angel of death went through all of Egypt, killing the firstborn in every family, but sparing those whose blood of the lamb covered their doorposts. And this is important because the divine timeline is utterly astounding. On the very night of the Passover, when all of these hundreds of thousands of lambs were being slaughtered all across Israel, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, hung upon a piece of wood, his blood painted across the beams of wood, the Passover Lamb of God, the one whom all those little lambs pointed towards. Fifty days later, they celebrated Pentecost, otherwise known as the celebration of the Feast of Weeks. There were sacrifices and feasting for seven weeks, but the primary emphasis of this celebration was the bringing of the first fruits. First fruits are exactly what they sound like. It was the time uh, which designated the change of seasons, predominantly the season of harvest. And as they went out into their fields and they gathered the harvest, they brought in a a bounty, a first fruits of the harvest. And in recognition that all of this was a gift from God, all of this was his provision for his people, they brought it forward as a sacrifice to him. That sacrifice reminded them that what was to come was a great harvest. That God was going to be faithful in bringing this first fruits meant that he was also going to be faithful to provide a greater harvest for them. And that's so significant because what is taking place on the day of Pentecost is designed by God to correspond with that exact celebration because, listen, this will be the first fruits of the harvesting of the Holy Spirit. 
It is this day in history when the church is being formed, when the church is being birthed, that the Spirit will bring in, and we'll read about this very soon in the coming weeks, 3,000 believers, the first fruit, which points towards a greater harvest that will come. Love God's divine timing, don't you? And you'll notice in verse 2 that as they were all gathered in one place, 120 people huddling together, they noticed this. It says this, And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. This happened suddenly, and there's great emphasis on this word in the text because God wants us to know that this was not something that was manufactured or designed or planned by any human being. This all happened by the mighty, powerful hand and plan of God. It comes from heaven signifying that this is a divine activity. And remember, this is so, so significant. Who had just ascended to heaven? Jesus. Listen, the connection here, don't miss this. What is being stated here is this, that Jesus Christ is still ruling and reigning over his church. Jesus Christ has not left his church to fend for themselves. No, no, he has come back from heaven, but in the way he promised he would. This is a guarantee from him. I told you I would be there with you, and here here I am. You'll notice this, that Jesus is still working in his church, and the Spirit of God demonstrates this. He came upon them with three supernatural signs. These signs parallel each other, and it's important that we understand the importance of each one of them. You'll notice that there is first sound, sight, and then strange speech. How's that for alliteration? Pretty impressive, right? They're given first this picture of sound. They hear. They hear, and and you'll just just notice this too. Put yourself in their shoes. This happens so suddenly, it's so out of the blue. Something supernatural of God is happening in their midst. And you'll notice the words, like a sound of rushing wind, and as of tongues of flaming fire. In other words, that's not the exact meaning. It's not a literal picture of what's happening. They're looking at something supernatural, and they're trying to explain it with human language. And the closest thing that they can come to is these analogous relationships. It's like wind. It's, it's like flaming tons of fire. But I just, I, you just need to know this. It's something supernatural of God. He's at work here. It's more than God just being at work here. Here's the point. It's God showing up here. That's what's happening, and that's why this is so incredibly significant. Why does, why does God come with the sound of wind? Why does he come uh, as of fire Why did he choose those two images to put forward to the church of Jesus Christ? I think just in one sense, we can understand this. When we read through the Bible, oftentimes when God shows up, it's called a theophany, a manifestation of God, his presence showing up in front of his people. Oftentimes, he will show up with the sound of a rushing wind or something that sounded like the blast of a trumpet. Oftentimes, he'll manifest his presence with fire. Think Moses, right, with the burning bush. Think of how he led the Egyptians with a pillar of fire during the night. And so there's a very real sense in what is intended for us to understand here is this. This is the presence of God descending upon his people. His presence, though, has come in a very different way than it had in the old ways. 
His power has come to his people in a very personal way. And there's a sense in which what we are to understand is there is intimacy involved in this picture. You see, in the Old Testament, and here's the distinctions that are really helpful. In the Old Testament, the presence of God's Spirit came in temporary ways. It came from time to time, and and it rested upon certain individuals and for a certain period of time, but then it would leave. It wasn't upon the entire community. But here what we see is this, that the Spirit of God fills the entire room, and you've got to get the picture. It's like a raging tornado was happening in the midst of their living room, 120 people just being blown around by this unbelievable sound of wind. You'll notice that the tongues, the, the, the flames that are like tongues of fire are descending upon each and every individual in the room. 120 people. No longer is the gift of the Spirit temporary. No longer is it for certain people. It is for all of those who have professed faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. God's presence is personal and God's presence is individual. That's exciting news living this side of the cross, isn't it? But did you ever think about this? As you look at this picture, why sight and why sound? Why does God choose to manifest himself with sight and with sound? And, and the answer is, it's amazing. You see, there's a deep connection happening here to the prophecy that is found in Isaiah. In fact, if you remember Isaiah, if you know anything about Isaiah, you know this. Isaiah wrote the book of Isaiah. But when God had called him, Isaiah was a man living in Israel, and God showed up in a vision to him. Isaiah chapter 6 is a crucial text for us. And in Isaiah chapter 6, here's Isaiah. He's brought by God in this vision to literally enter the throne room of the Lord. And in that throne room, what does he see? He sees the train of the Lord's robe that's filling the temple with glory. He's standing in the presence of the Lord Almighty, which, by the way, I believe is Jesus Christ. And he's in the presence of the Lord. It's there that he's called, and it is there that he's commissioned by God. Do you remember the scene, right? right? God says, who will go for me? And Isaiah says, here am I, send me. But if you look at that original context in Isaiah chapter 6, it's fascinating what God tells him after he commissions him. He says, okay, Isaiah, you're going to go for me. You're going to be a witness for me. You're going to testify to the deliverance and the rescue that I can bring. Well, guess what's awaiting you? Isaiah chapter 6 verse 9, listen to this. And he said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Hearing and seeing is a repeated theme throughout the Old Testament that describes for us rebellious, sinful Israel, and it points to rebellious, sinful humanity. As a nation, he says, these are the people, Isaiah, you will go to and you will declare the truths of who I am and what I call my people to. But guess what? They will not hear you. They will not see you. Their spiritual blindness and deafness will be evident. And Jesus actually picks this up in Luke chapter 8, verse 10, and he applies this to the nation of Israel. He's speaking to his disciples and he says, to you it's been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. But for others, speaking of Israel, they're in parables so that seeing, they may not, that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. 
See, what he's identifying here is that there is a fundamental spiritual problem in the nation of Israel and a fundamental spiritual problem in the heart of all of humanity. All of humanity has this problem, this sin problem, which makes them spiritually blind. It makes them spiritually unable to see, and it makes them spiritually unable to hear the truth of the gospel. But what's being declared here in Acts is that for the very first time in redemptive history, we can both hear and see. Just like the problem in Isaiah's day was spiritual and prevented them from being people who, it prevented them from being the people who God needed them to be. Now we have spiritually alive people. That's what God is saying. Now is the time where they can finally be the people whom I have called them to be. He is solving the problem of Isaiah, and he is solving the problem of humanity in one moment. You see, there's another important link here, though, if you look down at the, the verse, verse 2 with me, you'll notice that it says it came with a sound like a mighty rushing wind. Wind in the Bible is reflective of the very breath of God. It's an interchangeable word that's used for spirit or for wind, and both of them give us a bit of a picture. Do you remember Nicodemus? Jesus in John chapter 3 explaining to Nicodemus that the, the Spirit of God blows where he will. He moves how he will. He works in the hearts of people like he will. He's like the wind. But the word here that Luke chooses to use for wind is a rare word. It's a word that he didn't have to choose, but a word that links us directly back to one particular usage in the Greek translation of the Old Testament in Genesis chapter 2 verse 7. If you know anything about Genesis chapter 2, you know this, that you're in the middle of the creation account, and God is zeroing in on the creation of humanity. And as he creates Adam, he creates him out of the dust of the earth. And then what does the Bible say? As he creates Adam, he breathes into Adam new life. You see, the parallel here is this, that Luke is wanting to say, do you understand that where there was death, where there was spiritual death and inability to see and hear, now the Spirit of God is coming and he is breathing life into new people. He is creating new men and women and he is creating with them one new man, the church, where his breath and his life is infused into their community. This is powerful what God is doing here. In this new age, God is taking what's dead and making it alive. See, this is promised renewal. And this was a promise that God had given to His people all the way throughout the Old Testament. In fact, let me just read to you a, a few verses. Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26 says this. And here's Ezekiel speaking to Israel. And I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Jeremiah 31, 31, another important text, says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declared the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. This moment in Acts is the fulfillment of this promise. 
Here's the place where God is saying, look, I understand you were always called to obey me. You were always called to love me and to walk in my ways, but I looked at you and I knew that you were unable to do that because you had a heart of stone. You were spiritually dead. Your heart beat only for yourself, your own glory, and it beat for your sin. You weren't able to. You were totally unable to obey me the way I called you to. But I am going to solve the problem. I will reach in and I will rip out that dead, cold heart of stone. And I will replace it with a spirit-infused heart that now beats with a passion for me and for my glory. I will give you new power. I will give you new strength. I will give you ability to obey the commands that I have given you to obey. And that's why the Apostle Paul can write in Romans chapter 8, verses 3 and 4, for God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, right? By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. You know what Paul is doing there? He's reflecting on this promised renewal by the Spirit of God. The old heart has been ripped out. A new heart has been given. The Spirit is the giver of life. He is the one who is infusing his life into the church. John the Baptist promised that the Spirit would come. As he was baptizing people in the river, he, he told people that one is coming who is greater than him, and he would baptize them with the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, and with fire. And you'll notice here this, that not only does... The presence of God come like the sound of a mighty rushing wind, but it falls on them as divided tongues of fire appear and rest on each one of them. There's significance to both the fire and to the tongues. The tongues we'll see in just a moment, but why fire? Well, if we stick with Isaiah chapter 6, fire plays an incredible role for this person, this man, Isaiah, who wants to be used so greatly by God. Do you remember as he stands in the presence of God? He stands and he sees the glory of God filling the temple, and what does he do? He falls on his face. He declares before God, woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips. You know what he says? He says, I'm done, I'm ruined, I'm unraveled, I'm standing in the presence of the holy, pure, righteous King of kings and Lord of lords, and the only thing I can see now is how awesome and mighty and magnificent he is and how unworthy and sinful I am. It's always the way it is, isn't it? When you stand in the presence of God, you see so clearly who you really are blazing light of his glory, floodlight all over our lives. And Isaiah says, what was me? I'm a man of unclean lips. And the grace of God appears in that moment. God sends a cherubim, and he sends it to this fire. And he pulls a burning coal out of the fire. You can picture the coal probably still on fire. And he touches the lips of Isaiah, right? I'm a man of unclean lips. I'm unworthy. I'm a sinner. I'm unrighteous. How can I be used by God? God says, I will purge and cleanse your sin." See, fire in the Old Testament is so often intending to portray God's refining and purifying work. And the one thing that Isaiah, look, Isaiah becomes in one sense a picture for us, an illustration of every follower of Christ. Every one of us, especially this side of the cross, is supposed to be like Isaiah. Here am I, Lord, send me. But we all have the same problem. We need to be purged and refined. We need to be prepared for the ministry God has called us to. Spirit does that ministry. 
And here the Spirit is poured out and and it, it falls upon each believer intending, I believe, to portray this purging, cleansing work that's through the blood and and work of Jesus Christ, being applied to the lives of believers, which will now make them effective for ministry. And that's exactly why tongues fall on them, because their ministry is going to be one primarily of speech. We will go. Remember what Jesus Jesus told them? You will go. Go be a witness for me. Testify to me. And as we'll see, that's exactly what begins to take place. Verse 4 tells us, that they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And they began to speak in different languages. Now, at this point, I need to, you know, we did a, a little bit of a teaching time at the beginning, and that's important because this, this text has been used in so many different ways. And we need to try and understand what's accurately happening here so we don't make the mistake of wrongly applying it. I need to differentiate between a couple things that are happening here and a couple doctrinal issues. So let me just um, make these statements and bear with me, try and track with me. Um, What we need to see here is that there is the filling of the Spirit and the baptism of the Spirit, and both of these are two very different things. Now, I'll define what they are, and then I'll just, I'll preface it by saying this. At this moment in history, when the Spirit is coming, we see at the same time both the filling and the baptism occurring. It's not always the way it is. The baptism of the Holy Spirit, if you can just just remember what we just talked about with John, John's baptism was a baptism that identified people with a repentant Israel. And people flooded to John and they're saying, John, we know we we need to be baptized because we're sinners and we're not being used by God in the way that you've called us to. We, we, We are with you. We are those who are in sin and we need to repent. So listen, the point of baptism is an identification. It's an identification with a person or a group of people. That's what Jesus said our baptism represents, by the way. When we are baptized, physically speaking, in water, the spiritual symbolism is this, being united, Paul says in Romans Uh, chapter 6, to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We are identified with what He accomplished on our behalf. He died for our sins. He paid for our sins. He rose victorious from our sins, and our life is now hidden in Christ. It's an identity issue. The Spirit of God baptizes you, it fills you, and it seals you in Christ. Now, here's what's important to understand. The baptism of the Spirit is a one-time act whereby Christ places you into His body of the church. Scripture does not affirm any seeking a baptism of the Spirit. It is not depicted as an experience that we should be seeking. It's, if I can maybe draw a parallel, it, it falls into the same family as our adoption in Jesus Christ and our justification in Jesus Christ. It's not an experience. It's an objective reality. You have been taken from the kingdom of darkness and placed into the kingdom of His beloved Son. You have been baptized into the finished work of Christ, and now you are a part of His family. It happens the moment you are converted. The Spirit of God comes and resides within you. Now remember, this is a transitional book. So God is making a statement here that the Spirit of God has finally arrived. This has to happen in a really unique way. And let me just differentiate really quickly between the baptism of the Spirit and the filling of the Spirit. And this is important. Here's why. Because there are some people, and listen, I believe well-meaning people who many of them love the Lord dearly, who believe that the evidence that you are saved is that you speak in tongues. The Bible, listen, the Bible does not affirm that. 
And I say that with all love. I'm not, I don't want to judge anybody. I just want to be faithful and accurate to the Scripture. In fact, here's what we see. Right here in this moment, with the filling of the Spirit, the disciples speak in tongues, which we'll define in a minute. But catch this. There are multiple places throughout the book of Acts where the filling of the Spirit occurs. Acts chapter 4, verse 31. Acts chapter 9, verse 16. And there's a few more in, uh, following that. And the, the speaking of tongues is not present every time the filling of God is. The filling of the Spirit. In fact, the filling of the Spirit, we'll see in Acts chapter 4, sometimes it functions as an empowering to go out and preach the gospel. Sometimes it functions as an empowering to perform miracles. Sometimes it functions as an empowering to speak in tongues. But every time it happens to, to, with the speaking in tongues following, listen, there is a very important reason God is making a statement whenever tongues appear. See, so what's the statement? Well, you have to wait. I, I can't answer everything today, Okay. I'm just kidding. I'll tell you a little bit. Listen, the statement is this. We're going to see this in the text. Every time tongues appears, it's a statement that God's message of the gospel is going to the nations. Another barrier is being crossed. Another group that was formerly excluded is now being included, okay? It's a st- you say, why? Why, do, why did they need that kind of a statement? Listen, because in this Jewish mindset, you have to understand something. It was unheard of. It was unthinkable that the Gentiles could be included in the same group, in the same family as us. This is, this is mind-blowing what God is doing. So God has to teach them. He has to make statements. He has to drive the stake into the ground, and he has to keep reminding them that this was those for the Jews first, right? What does Paul say? Right? The power of God was for salvation unto the Jews first, then to the Greeks, Gentiles. He has to show them. This isn't just about the Jews. This is about the nations, and that's what we find happening. That's why they begin to now speak in languages to all of these devout Jews who have gathered, centralized in Jerusalem from every nation. Now, I'm not answering every question, and I just, maybe I'll just make this qualification. By the way, I'm going to make two qualifications. One, um, I meant to tell you up front that the first point was going to be the long one, okay? I've got two other points. They will be quicker, I promise you. Um, so some of you are like, okay, phew. Um, the second thing I want to just qualify is, is this. Um, I understand that I can't always answer every single question from up front here. Uh, and, and so if you have questions, look, you just need to just... You just need to know this. We're going to come across these kind of doctrinal truths multiple times throughout the book of Acts, and so I have to leave some of it for later. Some of you are going to come rushing at me, well, what about this? What about this? I am happy to answer questions after. In fact, that's one of the, the things I love to do, and I, I, I love you, and so I want to help bring clarity to, to what can be some confusing I- issues. But for now, just um, bear with me. I can't answer everything, or else we'll be here for a lot longer. Look, here's what you need to see here. What's happening in this moment in history is a sign from God that he is doing what he promised he would do. He is bringing the promised renewal. A new heart, a new life, a new covenant, a new day. All of this is being established, and so God is doing it in an incredibly powerful, supernatural, undeniable way. It is a sign that this is happening right here, right now. And and just maybe if I can make this a little bit more personal for you, if I can apply it. Listen, here's the good news. This, This truth, the principle of the Spirit indwelling you, is present in our life, in our day, right now. 
If you're in Christ, you are a new man or a new woman, okay? You have been given, the, look, the, this is amazing, and it's hard to wrap your mind around. The presence of God dwells in you right now. You're a temple of the Holy Spirit. Isn't that awesome? You know what that means? It means this. It means that your identity, you've been baptized into the Spirit. Your identity is no longer as a sinner that is estranged from God. Your identity is this, that though you may sin, you are now a child who's been adopted into the family of God. Isn't that awesome? I mean, the practical implications of this are massive. It means this, that you are no longer defined by your sin. You're no longer defined by your old. Some of you, you screwed up big, and I have too. You've done some stupid things. You've done some things that you regret. You've done some things that you're ashamed of. You're humiliated by. You're embarrassed by. But you know what? All of that stuff has been covered by the blood of Christ. You are no longer defined by who you were, by what you've done. You're defined by who he is and what he's done. You're now counted as righteous in the presence of God because Jesus Christ stood in your place. He paid for all of your sins. He took all of your sin, all of your shame, and all of your condemnation, and he took it all. He buried, bared upon himself the full weight of God's wrath, and then he did this. He rose from the grave. He declared victory over sin, and he walked over to you in the moment you were baptized with the Spirit. He wrapped you in the very righteousness of his own life. That, to me, gives me great confidence and courage. Some of you are right now wrestling with sin. And you're wondering, am I ever going to be able to gain victory over this sin? Is this sin going to literally cripple me my entire life? Am I forever going to be plagued by this? Will I ever gain ground? Will I ever progress in the Christian life? Or will I forever feel like a failure? Will I ever feel discouraged and defeated? And the resounding answer because of the Spirit of God that dwells within you is this. No, in Christ, not only do you have victory, you can have greater victory over the sins that continue to plague your life. You have the presence of God within you. The same power that rose Jesus from the dead has given you new life, and he is empowering you to gain victory. And some of you are like, well, then how come I'm not gaining victory? Well, you need help learning how to apply that, don't you? We all do, and that's why you're in the family of God. God doesn't intend for you to do it on your own. He gives you a family, a body. He unites you with people who are on the same journey that you're on and maybe some that are a little further down the road and they can come alongside and say, hey, here's maybe what you're doing wrong and here's how God wants this to operate in your life. Here's what needs to change. And See, God in his grace gives us everything we need through his spirit and through his spirit-infused community and through his spirit-written word. On this day, there was promised renewal and secondly, there was powerful reversal. There's powerful reversal taking place in this moment. Notice in verse 4, we'll just kind of pick back up and work through the next section of text there. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak in other tongues. That word tongues probably should be translated, as, as it would be more clear, as languages. It's the intent of the word there. As the Spirit gave them utterance, again, affirming that this is not something that is humanly manufactured. This utterance is given by the Spirit of God. This is supernatural. This is a miracle taking place. But notice, too, that the speaking in tongues is carefully explained and defined. Some people are like, well, what does this mean? I mean, is this some kind of... uh, um, utterance that is unintelligible and cannot be understood by anybody, or is this some kind of a human language? Here's the answer. The text tells us very clearly, doesn't it? This is human languages. Now, I understand again that there is much debate in the church today about the gift of tongues, and uh, we can't get into all of it today. Um, 
we, we will discuss it later on, but for many, this text has been used as a proof text to substantiate the claim that everybody who is baptized in the Spirit or filled with the Spirit must speak in tongues. And if you don't speak in tongues, then you're really not saved. And let me just, let me just make this abundantly clear again. That is nowhere found in the Bible. Speaking in tongues is not the evidence of being saved. Listen, maturity in Christ is. Growing in Christ-likeness is evidence that you are a part of Christ. So Jesus said in John 15, if you're looking for a verse for that. I just want to make a couple of little comments here. But um, While I believe well-meaning Christians believe this, we just, need to be, we just need to understand that this is not what's being stated in this text, nor is it stated or communicated in any part of Scripture. It's also interesting to note, and we'll see this, that the filling of the Spirit, again, I'll just say it again, does not always result in the speaking of tongues. In fact, the only time it does, again, it's when important, pivotal moments in the spread of the gospel are occurring, when boundaries are being shattered and broken down, and that's exactly what we see happening in this text. They speak, notice this, in known human language. This, this point is hard to miss, and it's extremely important for understanding this passage and the mission of the church. So let's just, again, reaffirm this. Look at verse 5. Now there, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews. These are all Jews, devout men. They're, they're spiritual. They're committed to the Jewish law. That's why they're there celebrating the feast from every nation under heaven. That's a little bit of a hyperbole there. Not every nation under heaven, but this is representative. That's the point. This is overarching representative of how the Jews have been scattered and dispersed across the Greco-Roman world. And this is how we know that because the next verses tell us exactly where they're from. Notice this. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered. So, so the, they're hearing all of these voices speaking. Notice this. Each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all those who are speaking Galileans? So you've got to stick to the scene here. They're probably, maybe they've heard the rushing wind. They've heard this tornado sound. And, and all of a sudden, they hear people speaking in their own native languages. And everybody's starting to gather and congregate around this house. And they're wondering, what, like, what's happening here? And they're looking at the people speaking. And they're amazed and bewildered because the men who are speaking their native languages are Galileans. They say, well, what is the point of that? It's an insult, right? Galileans aren't supposed to be smarter, educated people. But, but beyond that, this is a statement because a Galilean would only typically be able to speak one of three languages, maybe all three, but they would be this, Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic. Those are the common languages of the people. But now the bewilderment comes from the reality that men and women, by the way, who have no business knowing another language are now communicating perfectly fluently. This is a supernatural act of God. This is unreal. And so it causes them to be bewildered. They're, they're, they're befuddled. They're so confused at what's taking place. And then he goes on to explain. He gives a list. I won't read it again and butcher all those names, but could you get the sense here that this is, this is describing a dispersal? You say, why does he pick these, first, why does he pick these specific places? Uh, I, I, honestly, part of me doesn't know. I'm not sure. Is there, is there more meaning than I understand? Maybe there is. But I know, maybe I can just give you a general understanding of why he lists these places. It simply is a depiction of how the Jewish people were dispersed across the Greco-Roman world. And here's why that's significant, because it wasn't supposed to be that way. 
The Jews were supposed to be gathered together. They were supposed to be one nation, one people who were unified in Israel, in their land. But now what we've seen is this, they've been dispersed. And so here we have a list of nations, what some have called a table of nations. The first time we read about a table of nations, and by the way, the early church, all the way from the first centuries on, has seen this connection between Acts chapter 2 and Genesis chapter 10 and 11. In Acts chapter 10 and 11, what we have is this. We have the first list of the nations that are developing, the peoples that are developed. And in Acts chapter 11, what we have is the Tower of Babel. And the story there is, is fairly straightforward. Many of you know it, um, but for those of you who don't, let me explain it to you. What happened was this. At the early days of creation, man was growing and flourishing, but they were congregating together. There was one language at the time. And what they did was they united in their sin. They bound together and they began to build a tower that extended as high as high as they could possibly get it. They tried to get all the way up to heavens. And the point of that was this. They were declaring, no, no, they were demanding that they were kings and they deserve glory and God does not. They were utterly united in their complete and total rejection of God being their king. And as a punishment, God sees them in their sin and their wickedness, and He curses them by confusing their languages. He confuses their languages so they they can't communicate, they can't unify, and instead they're forced apart. They're forced to go their own ways and congregate with their new communities, and they're separated across the globe as a sign of God's great judgment upon sinful, wicked humanity. When you come to Acts chapter 2, you have to understand that if, if this is the reality, and I believe there are strong illusions taking place here, what you have to see is this, where there were once a people who were united in the rejection of God's rulership and sovereignty over their lives, now, now where God had dispersed them, God in His Spirit is now reaching out to every person across the globe from every nation, and He is bringing them together and unifying them around the name of Jesus Christ. No longer a man-centered pursuit. Now this new community, this new man will be defined by a Christ-centered pursuit. No longer designed to live and fight for their own glory, they will live and fight for the glory of their Savior and their King, Jesus Christ. There is a reversal taking place, reminding us that Jesus Christ is reversing the curse of sin. There is Another reversal taking place, I believe there's a strong allusion to the reversal of Babylon. So, what do you mean? Well, Babylon, if you remember the story of Israel, God had promised the nation of Israel that there would be times if they continued in disobedience, if they refused to bow the knee to their king, if they lived for idols and in sexual immorality, that eventually God's patience would run out and they would be dragged off into captivity. God came through on His promise, and in 605 B.C., Judah was dragged off in three waves into Babylonian captivity. They were under curse. And Babylon had dispersed the Jews. So where you see the Jews spread across the Greco-Roman world, it was a reminder that they had been sinful, that they had been rebellious, that they had disobeyed against God, and they were suffering this curse, this, this dispersion was a result of their own sin, and what they desperately needed was God to bring them back and unify them around His name. And that's exactly, exactly what God is doing. How? 
while the Holy Spirit empowers proclamation of the gospel. Did you notice this? They start speaking the mighty works of God in every tongue and in every language. The image here, listen, is of barriers crashing down. No longer will there be ethnic barriers. No longer will there be national or geographical barriers. No longer will there be uh, social barriers. Even the despised and rejected who have been forsaken in the past will be gathered in to this new multi-ethnic family of God. You know, an ethnically diverse church is not something that we strive for because it's hip and trendy. It's something that we long for because it is a reflection of the coming kingdom of God. Where God, listen, I love this, where God makes this statement in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9 and 10, John sees this vision. Listen to what he says. He says, after this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That is the song of heaven, people. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation represented in heaven. And that tells us, church, listen, this is so important for us because the church is not the end game. The church is a means to an end. The church is part of God's program to reach the nations with the good news of the mighty works of God, that there is one who came and died in our place, who saves us from our sins and restores us to life in him. The church is tasked, is sent to bring this message to bear upon the world, but you'll notice this, even in this text, there were polarizing responses. They heard their own languages. Verse 11, we'll just pick up midway through. We hear them telling in our own tongues, in our own languages, the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said they are filled with new wine. You know, when we preach the gospel, responses may vary. There will always be people who reject the message of Jesus Christ, and this reminds us, doesn't it, that even even in the face of powerful, supernatural, divinely ordained miracles, there are still people who could see that and experience that and will still turn their back on Jesus Christ. Some mocked them and thought they were drunk. I mean, they're looking at this. You know, these people are speaking a language they don't know, and the only explanation they have is, well, they must be filled with wine. They're drunk. And don't listen. This is just crazy. Skeptics will always exist. Prepare for that, church. Mockers and scoffers will always exist. In fact, they will accumulate as the day of Jesus Christ draws near. Tongues had a positive message to reach the nations. It's a reminder that the church is sent on mission to the nations to declare the gospel of Jesus Christ. But you have to understand something that I think many people fail to understand. Tongues also has a negative aspect to it. It had a, a negative aspect specifically for the Jews who were to be the initial recipients of the gospel message. 
Remember, the gospel, as we said, uh, goes forth to the Jews first, then to the Greeks, to the Gentiles. In discussing the, the question of tongues um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, the apostle Paul cites Isaiah chapter 28, verse 11 and 12. So listen to, listen to Isaiah chapter 20. It's right behind me on the screen. It says this, For by people of strange lips and with a foreign tongue, the Lord will speak to his people. But notice this context. To whom he has said, this is rest, give rest to the weary, and this is repose, yet they would not hear. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 14, speaking of tongues, actually says this, that tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. So, well, how does that make any sense? Who is he talking about? I believe he's primarily talking talking about unbelieving Jews. Tongues functions as a sign to them of God's judgment upon them. The context of the words of Isaiah is one of covenant rejection. If you read through Isaiah chapter 28, what you see is this. God is talking to a people who have rejected Him, and they've walked away from the covenant, and because of their sin and rejection of the message of hope, and by the way, what we get to here is the message of Jesus Christ, right? What, what did they do with Jesus Christ when He came to them, when He presented Himself to them, when He longed to gather them to Himself? They turned their back on Him. No, no, they didn't just turn their back on Him. They grabbed Him, and they strapped Him, nailing Him to a piece of wood. They killed Him. They rejected the hope of the Old Testament. All of the promises culminated in Jesus Christ. And in the context of Isaiah, a demonstration of the judgment, the sign of judgment that Paul references here is this. Because of your rejection of Jesus Christ, God will speak to you in an unwelcomed language, in unwelcome tongues. This is always the way that God has leveled judgment upon them. He exiled them into foreign lands, into Assyria, into Babylon, and all the while, every time they heard the native language of the people who had brought them into captivity, it was a powerful sign from God that they were under judgment. You rejected me. And here... The sign of tongues and foreign languages and going, listen, and going to the nations is a powerful rebuke to Israel, the love of God who reject the Messiah of God. And God tells us in His Word that while this should be a wake-up call, and one day it would be, sadly right now the kingdom is taken away from Israel and it's given to another who will bear fruit and who will make Israel jealous so that one day after the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, Romans chapter eleven twenty-five, 25, the fullness comes in, Israel in its jealousy looks upon him whom they have pierced, looks at the promises that should be theirs, and goes after them, finally falling to their face in repentance. Now, there's good news, right? There's, there's a sign here of judgment, but there is a sign of hope. Did you notice verse 12? That there were some who were amazed and perplexed, and they asked this question, what does this mean? You see, there's genuine intrigue here. 
See, God has been working in their hearts, and they're amazed. They understand that there's something unique taking place in history. There's something groundbreaking, earth-shattering, something supernatural that God is doing, but there's a measure of confusion. They don't quite get it. What is all this talk about the cross and the resurrection, and how does this apply to me? And what does this have to do with this new covenant being established? He's drawing them. He's getting them ready. You've got to see this. There's a preparation of their hearts happening here. He's getting them ready to hear with greater depth and with greater clarity exactly what these mighty works of God mean for them. And Peter will get up and he will declare it to them. And on this day, 3,000 people will bow the knee to Jesus Christ. Maybe God is speaking to you today. Maybe God is provoking your heart and you're hearing the truth of the gospel. You're hearing the mighty works of God. And for you, you're saying, I want in. And the answer for you today is this, you can be. Anybody who turns, who confesses their sin and who looks upon Jesus Christ, confesses him as Lord and Master, will be saved. I want to invite the worship team to come up. And uh, as we are preparing to respond in worship, I just want to encourage you, um, just keep your attention for a minute. You can, close your, you can close things up because I'm going to ask you to stand in a minute, but I just want you to pause for a moment. And, and I, I, wanna, I, wanna, I want you to be struck by the words, I think in an appropriate way. Just listen to these words. They declared the mighty works of God. They declare the wonders of God. They, in this moment, they declare, listen, that there is a new day that's dawned. That this incredible moment in the history of the world is finally here. That what God promised He would do is being done. It's unfolding before their very eyes. They declare that Jesus Christ is king, that he has declared victory over death and over sin, that he's risen from the grave, and he declares that hope is given to all those who would turn to him. What's so interesting is I'm struck by the nature of their declaration. Their testimony is the language of praise. You have to catch that here. It's the language of praise. It's a resp- you say, why is it the language of praise? Because praise is the natural response of the Spirit of God overwhelming our hearts with the mighty works of God. Amen? This is the intended response of God in the heart of everybody who has known and experienced the mighty works of God. So let me ask you this morning, have you experienced the mighty work of God in your life? Have you experienced that your heart of stone has been ripped out and a heart of flesh that beats for Him has been granted to you by His grace? Have you experienced that you were once dead, but he has made you alive? Have you experienced, listen, the victorious power of Jesus Christ in your life over sin? And will you be like them, and will you stand amazed and bewildered and awestruck that God, the God of this universe, would extend and lavish that grace upon you? Are you amazed this morning that the God of this universe has loved you enough to die in your place and to offer you new life in him? Are you amazed by the God whom you say you love and serve? How often is our praise failing to express what needs to be expressed? 
How often, church, how often are we holding back our praise of God? How often are we got hands in pockets, arms crossed, mumbling words on a screen, when what we ought to be doing is reflecting upon the mighty works of God in each of our hearts, and we ought to respond with the praise that is due to His name. Can I just encourage you? Listen, can I encourage you? I, I want to encourage you. Like, we get excited about a whole lot of things in life, don't we? We get excited about our favorite team winning sporting events. We get excited about people getting married, and rightly so. We get excited about little things that happen in our lives. But why are we not as excited about the mighty works of God that have been manifested in our lives? Why are we not excited about the work of the Spirit of God that is transforming us into the image of Jesus Christ? Why are we not as passionate and excited? Why are we not giving God the praise that is due His name? Well, listen, the good news is, is that every week God gives you another chance. So I want to invite you to stand. And I want to encourage you, let's, let's, let's not hold back, church. Let's give God what is worthy and what is due to His name. Let's stand amazed and let's praise Him with all of our hearts and all of our souls.